to the West, a Middle-Earth SVG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles, and with me today are Richard, Ian, Alexander, and a special guest back the second time, Matt from Chicago. Matt Swick, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Pretty good. So we last had you on the Radagast episode, almost coming on close to a year now, maybe like eight, nine months. What have you been doing since then? Have you been going to events and playing much? Yeah, actually, um, I did take a little gap in playing myself. I haven't really played in a tournament since the spring, but I've been running tournaments every single month here in Chicagoland, and uh, I've been hitting Lord of the Rings really hard again just recently, getting people prepared for Adepticon and just having fun myself. So really deep in Lord of the Rings right now. Okay. Last year's Adepticon was canceled, so... It just feels like forever since we've had like a two-day GT. Have you guys just been playing like one-day shorter, smaller games? Or has like the way the tournaments are formatted changed at all during the last few uh, months? Um, Nothing's really changed. It just depends on what we're doing lately, the point size and everything like that. But they're all single-day events. It's uh, much more easy to get everybody to come consistently to single day events here than you know taking up full weekends people are just too busy with family work school and everything like that the drives you know chicago traffic whatever so yeah all single day events usually three games and uh you know if we dip a little bit lower in points we'll have four okay so today we'll be uh, talking about fog of war and we have matt back on today he's kind of expressed that it's one of his favorite scenarios in the game we play that quite a bit, too, in the tournaments here, so I think that'll be a fun discussion. And then in our open topic, we'll be ranking the named Ringwraiths, which I think will also be a, a good time. So great to have you here, and you know, if there are any other questions, we can dive right into the scenario. So, Sounds good. Yeah, so we each brought an 800-point scenario today, and we're kind of writing it around Fog of War, but also writing the lists as like if we were going to a tournament that we know fog of war will be one of the scenarios and how how we would write our lists based around that scenario but also keeping in mind that it's a full tournament as well so they're all 800 points and after we go through each list and the scenario we'll kind of compare to see like the strengths and weaknesses of each one and we'll also do like a ranking of like which list we think is strongest in the context of the scenario Alex, would you mind going through the rules of Fog of War? and So Fog of War, I'll skip forward to starting positions. Both players roll a d6. The player with the higher result chooses one of the deployment zones. They then select a warband in their force to deploy within 12 of the board edge. Models may not be deployed further than 6 from the captain of their warband. Pretty standard deployment area layout there. When this has been done, the opposing player chooses one of their warbands, and they do the same on their end of the board and flip back and forth until all players have deployed all of their models. The game is scored essentially by selecting objectives and keeping them secret from your opponent till the end of the game. Uh, it says, at the start of the game, secretly note down one of your own hero models. This may not be your leader unless you only have one hero. You score one victory point if the nominated hero is still alive at the end of the game. The nominated hero is still alive and has suffered no wounds. You instead score three victory points. At the start of the game, secretly note down one of your opponent's hero models. This may not be your opponent's leader unless they only have one hero. You score one point for causing one or more wounds on the nominated hero. 
Wounds prevented by a successful fate roll do not count. If you kill the nominated hero, you instead score three victory points. At the start of the game, secretly note down a single terrain piece in your opponent's half of the board. You score one victory point if at the end of the game, you have more models than your opponent completely within your selected terrain piece. If your opponent has no models completely within the selected, selected terrain piece, and you have at least one, you instead score three victory points. You score one victory point if the enemy force is broken at the end of the game. The enemy force is broken and your force is unbroken. You instead score three victory points. Again, secrecy and deception is key. I think back in the day, people called this scenario, keep it secret, keep it safe. I don't know if that was the official name or just people liked calling it that name just because there's so much mind games involved. And just to add to what Alex said, this scenario ends on a one or two that you roll at the end of each turn after one side has been broken. So just to start, what kind of, what are some things that uh, you guys keep in mind when writing a list that would excel in this scenario? Well, I think this might be the only scenario where your leader doesn't give up VPs. So it's actually one where I, I quite enjoy, like, if I have a, strong, a leader who's strong in combat, like, I just throw them in and try and, like, just go and, like, get them to go kill the enemy hero that I want to kill most of the time. Because, like, you're not giving anything up, right? So you don't have to play them in the same way you normally would. And I think that's that's really fun. Yeah, on the flip side of that coin... I feel like weak combat leaders are particularly good in this one, like a Denether or a Master of Lake Town, because those are usually pretty easy to take down. But in this scenario, you're not really afraid of that. And I would also say that it's very important to protect all your non-leader heroes. And one thing I always kind of have to remind myself, because it's easy to forget you're not just trying to protect the model that you noted down and kill your target because the enemy is trying to do the same. So what I always forget sometimes is I'm busy protecting my model that I noted down, but the enemy could very likely have chosen a different hero. So in essence, you should probably be protecting all your non-leader heroes. Yeah, I think that's kind of what makes this scenario more complex. I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I think this might be the highest skill ceiling that where like a really good player can really take advantage of the rules and the VP scoring in this scenario and uh, picking targets and over like a player that's not as strong just because of how the VPs work because they're not as straightforward and there's guessing on both sides of the coin and protecting and you have to protect your target, but then also protect against the, uh, your opponent's target. So that kind of makes it a lot more complex and to, to keep track of as well during the game. I love this scenario. This might be my favorite. And um, in Chicago, we've picked this one a lot when we had predetermined scenarios, you know, for a tournament. What can I say? And I don't want to dive too much into other games, but I've looked into some like Malifaux or um, the Batman miniatures game. They have a lot of secret objectives, and I love that. It entices me right away. I love playing mind games with my opponent. I love when you don't have to just have a preconceived notion of what you're supposed to do in a tabletop game, like certain games have that. And um, in Lord of the Rings, you know, the game's more flexible because of the individual movement. And in a scenario like this, it feels like you're just having an actual battle and you really have to figure things out as it goes along. 
Another little point too with the victory points, I notice a lot of them are on a scale of like one or three. So they fluctuate enough that it'll make a tournament interesting because sometimes somebody might just not get those extra VPs. Whereas, you know, some of the other ones are like three, five, seven, you know, breaking three. If, you know, if you're unbroken, you get three or you might just get one if you're both, both parties are broken. I think it's a little bit different. So it could actually change the outcome of a tournament a little bit more. I can't say enough good things about the scenario. I think the only thing I don't care for is the 50% breaking. But uh, that's not, you know, unique to this scenario. That's just part of the game, so. Would you guys say that lists with more heroes have more of an advantage? Because it's harder to guess what hero that your opponent could be protecting and and, and vice versa, like, when you have more heroes. No, I get what you're saying. I think I could speak honestly. Um, I don't, like, having heard you guys and the list played or written, I don't know if anybody here has played, like, the spammy type of list as much as I have. But I've played this a bunch with Hobbits, right? And I'll tell you what, it kind of wipes the slate clean because I got 50 people for you to try to guess who I'm protecting. But you also have 50 people to choose to kill that are really easy to kill. So I think, honestly, it's kind of fun because I'm like, you know what? He's going to pick someone and I just go for it anyway. I don't, like, hide anybody in particular because there's a lot of targets for him. But also, like, I have some random guy that I probably shouldn't have chosen to protect who's going to be my guy. You know, I've had games where I picked to protect Fatty because my opponent's like, oh, yeah. You know, like that's the easy choice. So I don't want to take it, you know, and then Fatty becomes the guy I protected. It's really fun and funny because of that. So I think it wipes itself clean, kind of. I don't think it's any inherent advantage or disadvantage with those lists. Yeah, it's just one of those things where, for instance, the last tournament we played where we had Fog of War, I had the King's Champion who has two Heralds as well. They both count as heroes. I had Ballin and I had Floyd. Oftentimes when I play that list specifically, Everyone thinks, oh, he's going to protect Floyd. Floyd sits in the back rank. No, I protect the King's Champion because I'm going to throw him straight into combat. And he's just a defensive tank with one Herald. So he just kind of sits there and munches troops. And I just kind of insulate him a little bit. So it's sometimes it's a little bit about luck, too. Because sometimes your opponent picks the same hero that you are picking to protect. And it becomes, what, a four, six point objective, really? So what do you guys think about the other objective of this scenario regarding the terrain? I have to say that the wording of being completely within the terrain piece, that has caught me off guard before. And actually, one of the games I had in Nova a few years ago actually went from a win to a draw because I, my model was only touching the terrain piece. And since then, I've kind of been really careful of that. The model actually has to be completely standing within the terrain piece. That objective is probably the hardest to capture because I find that once the lines clash, usually you only have a few models to spare. And if you're only able to run towards one terrain piece, your opponent can tell what it is pretty easily. There are situations where you can have them split up and go towards different terrain pieces, but I find that it's really hard to get that three victory points because as long as your opponent has one on the terrain piece, then you can't get the full three. You can only get one. I think um, the terrain is kind of the most interesting objective here because I, I would say for like a big tournament like Nova, usually it's done fine. You know, you're not supposed to move the terrain or anything, but, you know, we know an experienced TO is able to place the terrain correctly. But I think a lot of times it's something that I think for this scenario, if the TO did not have it in mind, it might be something you want to bring up with your opponent. Like you said, some terrain might not even have a easy access to place a model within 
you know, and that wouldn't really be fair. Or on the other hand, it could also be, you know, on the far edge of a board where your opponent has like a much closer terrain. So like there's some things that you might have to discuss, you know, whether the opponent is willing to move the terrain or something like that. Or if not, then it just depends on the roll off and who wins the deployment. And it would be a big advantage for that game if you win that roll off. Yeah, I think it's it's always worth a conversation when you guys are writing down your objectives at the start of the game, just to go through all the terrain pieces on the table and figure out which ones are actually viable. And it also, you know, it, like you, you might have to, you know, agree to play things a certain way too, right? Like if you show up on a table and every terrain piece that's on there is impassable, well then you like you can't say, oh, I have to put models wholly within this thing I can't walk onto. You know, sometimes you have to say, okay, touching is okay. But you got to, like, as long as everybody talks beforehand and you two are both on the same page, I think that's okay. But that that's tricky, right? Also, in regards to getting this objective, like Charles was talking about earlier, I find most of the time it ends up being, like, the last turn or, like, the second last turn. There's just a mad dash and everybody starts throwing models onto random objectives. It's It's quite funny. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, speaking of that last dash, what I like to do is usually I like to start the game by running like one model directly to, you know, a fake objective to throw the enemy off and then usually do the last dash later on in the game, you know, but that guy's yeah, going to earn a medal for his country, bro. <laughs> Sacrificial <laughs> lamb. It's so fun. Godspeed, sir. If you have, like, an extra cavalry or two and you just put them on either sides of the board and just run them into the opponent's deployment and then you just go, I don't know what they're doing. They're doing something, though, potentially useful. And it's, like, it could throw off your yeah. opponent so much. So, um, I, I wanted to actually talk about this point, Charles. I'm really glad you brought this up. So, having run so many tournaments over the years, I found this to be one huge problem with the scenario. And I have uh, pretty much officially changed the way the scenario works in my group locally for the longest time. Because, you know, I think there's like a natural problem with the scenario because Games Workshop is expecting every table to be a certain way that it's, you know, fair or even capable. You know, I mean, how many pieces of terrain do we all own, you know, and we've been playing for quite some time that like could fully fit a warband. I mean, like I have a bunch of terrain for stuff, but... You know, I don't have a lot that it's going to fit full groups of people or something like that. So Goblin Mercenaries or just Fog of War. I changed basically the wording in all mine to be within or touching. Because at the end of the day, there's no difference in skill level, whether your guy is within a terrain piece or touching it. Like if you got him there through the fray in the middle of the battlefield, I think you've done your job. You know, another extra inch or inch and a half is not going to change anything. It's just going to make it more difficult. And a lot of times um, I do modify my boards when the round of Fog Award does come up so that there's like three to four pieces per side. Usually I like to keep them a little bit off center so people can't just, you know, cross the middle of the table. The boards are barely modified, but just enough so that the scenario works and it's easier for everybody. So um, I probably agree that there isn't really a good reason that it's um, within instead of touching. I think making it within, you have to think about it a little bit differently tactically because some terrain pieces are so small you can only fit a couple models in the terrain so those ones might be easier to defend also models with stock unseen or woodland creature you might be able to take advantage of those rules if you're standing in like behind a tree or in like a piece of wood you have to think differently so i kind of like that how it's different from like domination and capture and control which are all kind of the same you just touch the objective i like how this one's a little bit different i don't mind that it's different but i do agree with you 
it can limit the, the amount of terrain that you can choose from. One question about assassination target and the protecting target. Do you guys have any tips on like how you guys come to those decisions of who you pick for those two? Are there any tips that you can give of like how you choose? Like for example, I think one that I can say is if you have like a siege engine, it can be pretty obvious to pick your engineer, but I find that people usually go for your uh, your siege veteran, I mean, because people think that, oh, it's in the back, you must be protecting it. So I find that maybe don't pick your veteran because he only has one wound. That's just like one I can think of. I, I don't know if you guys have anything else, just rules that you go by. I generally want the hero I'm protecting to be able, somewhat capable of fighting, or at least have heroic defense. Like, they don't need to be great at fighting, but at least, like, you know, two attacks kind of thing. Because chances are, they're probably going to end up in combat anyway. And when they do, you want them to be able to, like, at least kind of handle themselves. It's also handy not to make it, like, the most obvious choice. Like, if I have a list with, like, Kirdan in it, I don't know if I want to, like you're saying, like go for the obvious one and just choose to protect Kirdan or choose to protect somebody else, like an elf captain. Because even though my elf captain's going to be in combat more, he's still reasonable, defensible, you know, fight six, defense seven. Maybe I'd go for that instead. I think it actually depends on the list that you're coming up against. Like sometimes I think it's good to go for the obvious choice, like the siege engineer veteran or Kirdan. Like let's say if they don't have legless and they have a, like a purely like combat force. It's actually really, really tough sometimes to get to those, you know, or like Bard's kids. Of course, if they have like Siege Weapon or Legolas, then it's like, yeah, yeah you, you don't want to go for those targets. But I think that's the nice thing about also your experience is not have a hard rule in which hero you're going to protect. Kind of go by what the opponents have. But another, I guess, rule of thumb is I like bringing heroes with at least two fate. I feel like you know, a lot of people have said that they prefer Hurin over Faramir. But in this particular scenario, I think Faramir is a really great secondary hero. With He, he has heroic defense and two fate and defense seven. So even though they're about that same tier, he's surprisingly tough, which is nice. So you, you want like more like durable heroes rather than maybe sacrificing for killing power. Yeah, those are some good points, and uh, we did have a mini-debate uh, of Hurin versus Faramir on the Faramir episode, so listeners can go check that out if you want to hear more of that in depth. I think one other one is more specific, but if you have some sort of wraith that has one wound, it's not a bad choice for um, picking him to protect because he can't get wounded, so your opponent can't score partial VP. They generally have high defense, so if you can prevent them from being wounded then they can't score any VP. As for offensive, as for picking a hero to assassinate, like Richard said, it depends on the list, but sometimes you want to pick the hard hero to assassin. So like, for example, if they have like Bard and Dane in their list, you might want to pick Dane if Bard is the leader, because Dane's going to be in combat pretty much the whole game, and you're going to be fighting him pretty much the whole game. So if you can get, even if you don't kill him, you might be able to wound him and score a point, rather than picking like Bard's kids that, like Richard said, if you don't have any utility to get at the kids, Dane might actually be the better option in certain situations. Reminds me of one of the first games I played Ian, actually. He had Dane, Legolas, and Thranduil, with Thranduil being the leader. And I think that was when I was first starting off. And I think Ian thought the most you know, logical would be like, okay, he, he's probably going for Legolas. But I chose Dane instead as my assassination target, and I ended up killing Dane and winning the game that way, right? 
and you know i guess like on face it's value like you know. the only time dane ever died for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean like there was no chance i was getting to legolas like even getting a wound for me, if I'm picking who to protect, you know, you want a sense of reliability. Basically, most of what these guys said already, I would be echoing. But, you know, you don't want somebody with two wounds, fight five, and one fate, you know, because you could go into combat against two elves or two urukai and accidentally die, you know? It's just like, I want somebody who's like a little bit consistent for you, who you know has some staying power. Um, at the end of the day, the mind games are great. You could trick somebody. If sometimes somebody's uh, playing with the list with Legolas and Toriel, you know Legolas is going to be running away. Toriel is going to be in combat the whole time. So maybe you want to pick Toriel to kill her, even though she seems a little bit tough, you know? But yeah. On the mind games thing, I find it very beneficial. Every time you lose a hero, you just get really upset. No! And every time you kill one of the enemy heroes, you just cheer. You go, yeah! Yes! Great success! And then... I got him! I got him! confusing. I've also done it before in scenarios where I'm like, just to throw the opponent off, I'll be like, okay, all of my bows are going to aim at this one hero. And then, oh, Legolas, he's going to aim at this other hero just to confuse them <laughs> about who my actual target is. Oh, oh, I love that. The, <laughs> the, you know, strike first. I think I did that recently at another tournament. When I played uh, Angmar, you know, he had several Barrow Wife and uh, I had Gladriel Lady of Light. And my first, um, what, what was the spell? <laughs> banish. Yeah, my first Banish was against the target, the, the hero that I was not trying to kill, just to kind of throw him off. Yeah, that's a great trick. I would say another one that I have done before is Feign Ignorance. You know, when you're writing down who you want to kill, question and be like, hey, uh, that Legolas... He's defense four, right? Only defense four, defense five. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, he's just defense five. And he's like, and you'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, seems pretty squishy. So you listeners heard that, right? If you play Ian or Richard at a convention, don't don't play it. Don't fall for that. You know the tricks now. <laughs> now we'll just have to do the opposite. Mm, what is this edition called again? Get out of here. You have a podcast. You know? <laughs> well, that's the other thing, though, is I find is like, Especially if you play this against other people, like, frequently against the same opponents. Like, it benefits you so much just to do something completely different every time. Because, like, you never know what's going to happen. I was going to mention that, um, telling what kind of, like, especially local games, if you know how certain players play, you're like, well, this guy's aggro, he's just going to send everybody into combat, so I could just kind of pick whoever, and eventually the dice are going to get through. Some of the most interesting Fog of War games are the ones that Ian and I play against each other. Because we've played each other in Fog of War so many times over the last, like, 10, 15 years that we know what the other one is like enough that it's like, I can't just be like, oh, I know how this guy plays because he knows how I play. It's like face-off with Nick Cage and John Travolta. We just know exactly what the other one's going to do. So we're constantly trying to work around so that we're not getting caught by each other. It's hilarious. My question is, who out of you is Nick Cage and who is John Travolta? I'm Nick Cage every time. Okay, I think this is a good time for us to go through our lists and see if we can pick out some of the examples and strategies that we just mentioned. Why don't we start with Matt? Why don't you go with your list, just break it down and kind of your thought process on playing this list in the context of Fog War? Okay, so this is actually a list I would take if I was just going to a tournament, let alone, you know, Fog of War. But um, I've been running Last Alliance a lot lately, so I'm going to start off with a Sealder. He's got a horse, of course, all the time. Shield and the One Ring. 
He's got just 15 Warriors of Numenor with shields, nothing else. The next warband is going to be Gilgalad. He's got his horse, his shield, and he is leading six Kingsguard with shield and spear, three elves with bow and spear, and a knight of Rivendell with a shield. And then the other warband is going to be a high elf captain, horse, shield, and lance. Lance every time. Four elves with spear and shield he's leading. Three elves with just spear. That's just for, for point's sake. Two elves with bow and spear, and another knight of Rivendell with a shield. So I've got 38 troops, seven bows, eight might, and it's 800 points on the dot. So I'll start off talking defensively because I think a lot of people would say the high elf captain is probably going to be the easy choice for somebody to choose because you can't choose Gilgalad being the leader of the force. But at the end of the day, the high elf captain still has fight six uh, in the new edition with the lack of strike everywhere. I mean, there's still a lot of heroes who are just simply not going to be able to get to his fight value in the game. You know, there's going to be massive ones. But um, he still has got the defense. He's on a horse. He's got a lance. He's still dangerous to a lot of people. So, I mean, you could come after the high elf with the lance. But generally, captains of that level with lances, the Numenorians or anything else, I play him safe anyway. I'm usually just munching up troops. So if I see them coming near him with something big, it's kind of obvious who they're going for. I don't think many people are going to choose this elder uh, with the one ring and the, uh, with the stat line he's got. He's also not another model I don't get too aggressive with. And like uh, I believe Ian was talking about earlier, having your leader not matter for victory points in this scenario, I'm just going to send Gilgalad in and he's just going to cut heads off. He's going to be running around chopping up all their heroes and everything else in the way. So this is one of these lists where, honestly, I go confidently, almost cocky into a game where I'm like, all right, my heroes are excellent. My troops and my battle line are excellent. I mean, like, you could come try to pick somebody apart, but it's not the easiest battle line to just cut through and pick off heroes, you know, unless I make mistakes and you got flying stuff like, you know, a Gulivar or an Eagle, this is a pretty um, capable list. It's pretty sturdy is what I'm getting after. So is it right to assume that you probably would pick Isildur to protect? Yeah, honestly, probably most of the time. I don't think I need to play mind games with this one because unless I'm playing maybe somebody I know or I see a certain type of list, I'm trying to think of a good example. But if I do run up against another list that has, uh, you know, maybe like another Elven list or something with a fight value that challenges me, you know, you're protecting a seal there every time. But if you're facing something like super low, like a goblin horde or something like that, maybe you do pick the high elf captain because you're expecting them to try to like go after him. You know, I'm not really sure. Again, like Richard mentioned, like you got to see what your opponent has and really go from there, I think, with this list. But the might, the will, the fate, the fight value, the ring to keep him safe. A sealed is a pretty solid choice to keep protected. Yeah, I really like your hero choices. I mean, I, I thought about Isildur a couple times myself. He's probably just one of the best secondary heroes you can have for this scenario, just because no hero wants to get at him. And yeah, he is tough. So I think, like you said, I think 90% of people will be going after the High Elf Captain, and you can play accordingly. Like, honestly, you don't even have to really fight with your High Elf Captain, and it's not that big of a loss. He doesn't have to do that much work, considering the rest of your list. And yeah, Gilgalad, I think, is one of the best leaders in this one. Blood and glory, you know, fight nine. Yeah, and then, like, you know, they have no incentive in really taking him down. If they put too much resources into him, you're like, uh, who cares? So Gilgalad's going to definitely do work for you. I guess, like, I'm kind of surprised that you didn't go for a banner in this list for such a high fight value army. I'm guessing it's for the troop count, because... 38 models for a last lines list at 800 points is pretty impressive. But I guess for me, that's just a rule of thumb for this kind of list. Even if there's no banner points in this scenario, 
And plus, like, you never know. Let's say this is only one of the scenarios in the tournament pack. There likely is at least one uh, scenario that will be banner VPs. Yeah. On that, like I'll say first and foremost, I'm not a huge fan of worrying about where banners are or having them on the field unless I got them on like a Suladon or a Bard type character or an Emmerhill or even like Mayor Willfoot for the Hobbits. You know, I love banners that are attached to things that are really hard to kill so I don't have to worry about transferring it over. It feels like excess baggage to me. And um, having play tested with the Last Alliance, I don't know how much experience you've played with them. But, like, what I've really enjoyed is if I have those extra models, uh, their battle line very much sustains any kind of punch. I've been playing against Pits of Dol Guldur lately a lot. I played against the Army of the Dead with Aragorn chopping through stuff in the King of the Dead. I feel like with extra models and so many shields around, you have Fight 4 shielding, you have Fight 5 shielding. Your heroes are scary for anybody. So there's, like, a lot of sustaining line around your army. And you could double your dice on most of the models if you really need to. And then there's a couple cavalry pieces to charge in. you got the Fight 6 Kingsguard. Even when I'm like playing suboptimally with my decision making, I feel like there's not a lot of fights I'm losing unless the dice just completely betray me, you know? So yeah, a banner would be excellent, but um, I like more models and I just like how it is with the fight value being high everywhere. I was just going to say, I really like, again, I'm going to echo Richard a little bit. I really like the hero choices. I'm a big fan of the High Elf Captain, like generally, uh, just because, you know, for the cost, they're actually pretty efficient. You get the mobility, you get the defense, and of course you get the lance. So they can move around and do a lot of different things. What in Rivendell is a pretty reasonable cost. So I like that pick. And I also completely agree with picking a sealed door. It's the same mentality I have sometimes. The big hero that you're throwing into combat that's not your leader is often the one that your opponent wants to try and avoid. So it sometimes is actually a safer pick to hide him in plain sight. That's that's a choice that I quite like. 38 troops at that level is really high. Personally, I would have almost automatically put a banner in there, but that's just how I play. But dropping that for 38 troops is, you know, a, still a strong choice. Aside from that, yeah, just experience of playing against Last Alliance. Sometimes you see the Defense 5 Warriors of Numenor, and you think, oh, well, that's not too bad. Until you realize they're backed up by elves, and they've got Fight 4 and Fight 5. And if you shield with them and just kind of make them hold a position and die slowly, they're really difficult to get rid of. It doesn't matter that they're Defense 5. I really like this list. I think what I can add that hasn't already been said is uh, Gilgalad is, even though there's no VP for wounding or killing him, your opponent will have to commit resources because he's just not a hero that you can ignore. So your opponent will be either using their big hero to try to stall him or some sort of magic, or it's going to take them significant portion of the force if they don't want their line to fall apart. And so I think that the target you're trying to protect might be even easier than it looks on paper. Isildur also has resistance to magic, which is really helpful. At 800 points, you're, you're going to see casters. And what might be his only weakness is significantly lower because of resistance to magic. I guess the only change I make is I might take a few more bows. And I don't like taking elves that don't have bows without shields. So the three elves with spear, I might give them shields instead. But other than that, I really like this list, and I think it's really good in Fog of War. Yeah, I don't know what else to add either. The, the only thing I can think of is that it. I think it is quite nice that all three of the heroes that you do have are quite capable of taking out enemy heroes, which is really handy, because sometimes when you're playing this scenario, things just don't line up right, and your target enemy hero can end up lined up against like some of your, one of your random heroes. And they, if it's not somebody who can fight in combat, you're usually in trouble. You're going to struggle to kill them. 
But in this sense, you covered pretty well. Like, all of your heroes are more than capable fighters. Yeah, one thing about the Last Alliance list, and I, I've told Charles this, like, personally, I'm really, really enjoying this list. You know, you come up against somebody, they have three heroes in the scenario, and guess what? Two of them got plus one to wound, the other guy's got strength five and a magical ring. You're like, okay, well, you know. Let's go to our next list. Uh, Richard, do you mind going over yours? Sure. So I thought today I would be the first to bring up Kazadoom on this podcast. But Alex already beat me today, <laughs> beat me to it, and talked about the King's Champion somehow. I don't even know. But So I'm going to call this list, I am Alexander, or rather Alexander as he should have been. It should be like the Green Dragon thing, you know? Alex mentions Kazadoom. Ding! <laughs> King's Champion. Ding! <laughs> Ding! Legolas. Ding! <laughs> we don't have the budget for that many sound effects. Okay, so the list I have is Balin as my leader, leading two Vault Wardens, three Kazad Guard, nine Dwarves with Shield, two with Bow, and two... Dwarf Rangers with Longbow and Throwing Axe. And then essentially I have two following Warbands, very similar, pretty much the same in composition, but with a few less models because they're not Hero of Legends. I have Gimli and the King's Champion. Oh, and my last Warband, I have the Dwarf Ballista. So in this one, or I built this for Fog of War, you know, to give me a few options for heroes. I think Kazadoom was a good option because there's a lot of heroes and they're quite tough. Kind of like what Charles brought up. You know, one of the obvious ones is the engineer veteran. And the siege vet, what I like is that essentially he could be protecting two objectives. So not only in the protect your hero objective, but also you would be very likely preventing your enemies capturing your terrain objective because you can sit in the back and if they try to run any models in too early in the game to their objective on your side, you usually have a clear shot to take them out. You know, otherwise, if they still somehow get there, the last few turns, once you know which objective they're going for, you can kind of follow them around and use your two vets to jump onto their objective that they're trying to capture. So that means they would have to send at least three guys which is a lot of models in this scenario, because most of the time I see only one or two being sent out. Because once an opponent has to commit, you know, three to four models, just one of these objectives, I think you're winning on the value here. And even though they're not great fighters, you don't necessarily have to fight them. What you can do is jump on the other side of the terrain to kind of offset their objectives and just kind of play hide and seek, you know, if, if it's a model that you don't want to be fighting. I guess I like my other choices because, you know, the King's Champions banners seem like easy targets as well, but they're surprisingly tough because they can go up to Defense 8 or Defense 9 with two fate. And generally, I feel like if you're an experienced player, you can protect your banners, and these are tougher banners than usual, so I'm not too scared. And if you decide to protect one of your banners, obviously, you know, you throw that one to the side of the battlefield that is less dangerous. I have a lot of Vault Wardens. I have six, three teams in total. And I like these in this scenario because you can hold up choke points depending on, you know, the terrain setup. And also, I think they're very useful in protecting your heroes. Once you kind of get an idea of which heroes they're probably going after in combat, 
you can put one of these teams beside one of your heroes that you don't want to get killed. And, you know, if the enemy loses priority or move-offs, then you can easily tarpit them. And last of all, I guess, like, having Balin, he's not the most durable leader. And I think that just works perfectly in this one because... A lot of the times he does get wounded or killed, and in this scenario, it just doesn't matter. And I would say, overall, for a dwarf list, my shooting is pretty decent. I got long bows, I got normal strength 3 bows, and I got a siege weapon. So the deployment that is 12 inches within the edge can be quite advantageous as well if I'm coming up against an army that can't really shoot. Can I start? Can I, can I start? Because I just want to say I, I approve this list. I... I saw this when uh, you first put this in the group chat, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, that's my list. Wait, no, that is in fact one of Richard's lists, because I've never run this list. But it's very close to one that I play, or close to one that I play frequently. I really like the hero choices. Sometimes I find the Ballista underperforms a little bit, but that's just kind of the nature of their 50-50 hit roll with the Ballista. I normally go with all dwarf rangers with longbows at this point, but I think having the the variety of range might help because if your rangers can force your opponent to come towards you and get within the range of the dwarf warriors, that strength three can make a difference. You also have the throwing axes, which are really, really useful, especially when if you sit the rangers back and then move up into supporting models, you can throw your axe and, and that can be pretty useful too. Uh, I've been meaning to get my hands on at least two or three Vault Warden teams just for the exact reasons you've mentioned. They're, they might as well be terrain pieces. You put them down, you move them into a point that your opponent's trying to get to, good luck getting through there for the next few turns. Unless you're Ian, he rolls sixes by sixes and it makes nothing fun. Beyond that, really enjoy the list. I agree with everything you've said about the uh, the heralds. You know, they're surprisingly difficult to to take down unless one of them gets overly exposed. But aside from that, they're pretty good. Gimli and the King's Champion, you know, they'll, they'll do most of your damage. Balin can kind of sit there and munch one or two troops a turn and, and put up a pretty solid game. So I like this list a lot. So one question, if this was a pre-selected scenario pack and you knew that there wouldn't be Fog of War, would you have gone with a Dwarf King instead of Gimli? Because I think Dwarf King is easily better value. Gimli is better in Fog of War because he's more survivable and other reasons that was mentioned. But you are paying a little bit of premium because you are paying for the final count 42 special rule. So I'm just wondering, did you choose Gimli because you knew Fog of War was going to be in the event pack? Um, Not necessarily. I mean, I... Gimli might not be the best value, but he's not bad. And I have played Kazadoom list at Nova before with Gimli in this list. And it's surprisingly good because I think the issue with Kazadoom list is they're kind of a slow grindy list with no mounted heroes. So I like Gimli's hitting power added to it, especially because I'm taking a lot of Dwarf Warriors with just shields. And a lot of times they'll just be shielding. So my killing power in my warriors are not actually that high. I only have a few Kazagards spread out. So I'm really relying on my heroes to carry me. And, you know, sometimes Balin and the King's Champion won't be enough. That's fair. The only thing that the King would bring that Gimli doesn't is a march on a secondary hero instead of on Balin. In case you wanted to go for that objective in Fog of War. But Gimli is a lot better hero to kill with. So I understand that pick. 
But yeah, that was the only question I really had about this list. It looks like it would do really well in this scenario. And the siege weapons, I would agree, are really good when it comes to the terrain piece objective. I've used definitely the strategy you said. You can trick people, you can protect your terrain pieces with it. It's so good in Fog of War. So you can, well, you can also use the siege weapon to snipe off any enemy models that are sitting on the objective that you want to capture. So I, I agree, it is like a really, really nice pick. Also, it's like a different kind of frustration playing a Kazadoom list in this scenario when you like grind through line of D7 after line of D7 to finally get to an enemy hero and they just like have like heroic defense and multiple fate points and you're just like, oh god, I need like three turns to get through this and it just it, it just doesn't happen. It's so hard to score VPs against against this list or just like the Kazadoom list in this scenario for that reason. Yeah, other than that, yeah, picks are good. I like the, the Vault Wardens. There's, like, what, six teams in there? That's insane. So, yeah, you can just, like... Uh, just just three teams, actually. Was it just three teams? Yeah, because oh. it's two models in each team. Oh, that's how it's displayed. Okay, okay, okay. Still, though, that's not bad. Yeah, you can still, like, easily block a big enemy hero that's going after any of your guys with that. So, yeah. Looks good. I like it. So, historically, just coming up against any list that has 46 models with defense 7-ish, give or take, and uh, fight 4, always gives me headaches, you know? it's Every time I sit on the field and I'm playing against a, a dwarf list with high number count, it's difficult, you know? Coming up against this list in Fog of War, I know I probably will have mobility on my side. You know dwarves, they're going to march up and meet you in the middle. I think being able to protect someone, you might be able to run away and play for that terrain piece. I think those are your bets, though, because trying to dig through and pick out heroes, I don't even care what your heroes are, but trying to dig through these models to get to them is going to be difficult for anybody. It's a list that, like, even if you win that game, you're going to need some water and uh, something afterwards. Take a little break and air it out between the next round, you know? So, yeah, it's an excellent list. What else is there to say? Vault Wardens are disgustingly good when played by a talented player like Richard. And yeah, um, I like the Gimli pick because I don't think you need to go above 46 models and save on the point value, you know, and the um, Heralds or whatever. I was like looking at that. It's interesting. And I probably let's put it this way. If, if I'm going to a local tournament and I know the player or if I'm going to a convention and somewhat of the conversation like led me to believe they're like a newer player, I probably would go for one of those Heralds. But if I'm playing someone like Richard or Ian and Charles, Alex, somebody who's known the game for a while, I'm probably going to pick Gimli to kill, actually. You know, so it's a tough list if that's my guy who I think is going to be the good choice. You know, I will say it's also incredibly frustrating when you kill one of the heralds and, you know, you do your little happy dance on the inside and then you realize it was the wrong herald that you've been targeting the whole time. That is devastating. And it's ah, devastating. Ah, but that herald is holding the banner with his right hand. So you got the wrong herald. I'm sorry. Try again. OK, um, next, I think I'll go over my list. Do you guys want mine? So. My list is the new Rangers of Mirkwood Legendary Legion, and my leader is Legolas, Prince of Mirkwood. He has 14 Rangers of Mirkwood in his warband, and one Wood Elf Sentinel. Second warband is Toriel, and she has 11 Rangers and one Sentinel in her warband. And I have a third warband, which is a Mirkwood Ranger Captain with 10 Rangers, and this is 40 models at 800 points. Every model in the list has a bow. You know, when the supplement first came out, you know, people were obviously focused on the Vanquishers, Legion, and just like, th this one didn't get talked about a lot, and I read through the rules a little more carefully, and I actually think that it has some competitive ability. The rule where Mercury Rangers are allowed to shield and reroll ones to wound, 
I think that actually is huge because they don't have access to banner or spear supports. And that rule allows them to always roll two dice. So previously, if they're charged by an enemy, they only roll one dice. It's only when they get to move first and charge two enemies that they can roll two dice. And now it ensures that each Mirkwood Ranger can always roll two dice if you need it to. And then the rerolls once to win is basically the Kazanum army bonus. It's great. So I think it has some hitting power, and the Rangers might not die as quickly in this Legion in combat. So I basically, out of the three heroes, all of them have Elven Cloaks. Toriel is the combat hero that I probably want to throw in, so I probably want to put the Ranger Captain as the one to protect in most situations. And I don't feel as bad about it because this Ranger Captain does not have Heroic March. And he has heroic accuracy, so it actually makes more sense for him to stay back anyway if you're going to use the accuracy, which you might actually use in Fog of War if you want to knock out your assassination target with shooting. So we talked about previously that accuracy doesn't get used a lot, but I think this scenario, it might be one that you actually use it. But it's pretty straightforward. There's only rangers and sentinels in this list. The strategy is just to shoot my target down if I can and protect the ranger captain. He'll be relatively safe and away from combat. Obviously, I have the deadly shot, two plus to hit, that's also good at putting a wound on my target as well. So I think that will be my easiest VP to achieve. The other two are a little bit more difficult. Protecting the Ranger Captain might take a little bit of work depending on the mobility of my opponent, and the terrain one might be the biggest struggle. I think that's just the one where I'll have to rely on my sentinels maybe to move enemies away if they try to contest my, my piece of terrain and just rely on those rolls and using rangers to hide behind the terrain so they don't get shot at. But that's my general strategy. What do you guys think? So I want to start this off with a funny little story from my past. So when I first got back into this game and I saw the Mirkwood Rangers come out, you know, being a noob, I misread their rule, and my opponent, who loved playing Mirkwood Rangers... We played them as if they always had two attacks as soon as they were in base contact back in like 2014. And I was like, man, these things are really good. And we were heartbroken to find out that they were only one attack after all. And then when this Legion came out, I was like, oh, justice for Mirkwood, you know? So I don't know what to say. You know, depending on the matchup, this list could be really devastating to play against. I think you could like kite some armies around. There's like high fight value everywhere. If you just keep rolling hot on the dice with the two attacks gonna be a long day because you can't wound stuff that you can't beat in a fight you know so i do like the list you know um it's straightforward and you only have so many options so you did nothing wrong with it you know i think it's it's solid i actually didn't see your list before i mentioned that toriel thing earlier choosing her as my hero to probably kill off and i probably still would go with her and the ranger captain you know they're low defense so if you could get past the fight value you know relatively low defense if you could get past the fight value you have a chance to kill some of these models but you're going to take a lot of bow fire coming in, and if you pick your fights and use the terrain, it's going to be tough to get through and kill your models off. I mean, it's a solid list, you know, for the Mirkwood Legendary Legion, so I like it. I feel like with this, you're going to do a really good job of at least, like, achieving a few of your objectives, like, in, like, every time you play this scenario, right? Like, chances are you're probably going to break, like, you should break your opponent with the amount of shooting you have, along with, like, just the number of, like, 5-5 five, five models you'll have once you get to combat. So breaking the opponent should be doable. And killing the enemy hero should be doable because of all the shooting and, like, same thing. And then, like, defensively, like you mentioned, you have the the sentinels to pull people off of terrain, the pieces that get in, in your back line. And you also have the auto hit from Legolas, or the two plus hit, that could pick off any models that do break through and try to go for it. 
same thing with the two pluses. Like you could use it if, if a model gets engaged with the cat, then you could do like just ping, try and kill the model with Legolas's shot, or at least get the captain out of a sticky situation, or pick off an enemy horse, uh, hero's horse who was fighting the captain. So you have a lot of options with that. I'm not sure if you would win big in this scenario a lot, but I think you would win in this scenario a lot of times. If that makes sense. Like a 9-6 kind of thing. I think you would win it like the majority of the times. And like part of that too is just you're setting up with this nice 24-inch gap every time and you have, what, like 40 bow shots or something insane like that? Like that's that's a recipe for success right there. Okay. Uh, now that we've heard from both the guys who love bows... I'm going <laughs> to give a bit of a contradictory opinion. I think, of course, like there's only so much you can do with this list. I, I think you did a good job, but the list is kind of crap. I just <laughs> I just don't think, especially in this scenario, would work actually too well. In theory, maybe, but what I'm thinking is you're automatically giving up both the terrain objectives. So you scoring and the opponent scoring on you. The opponents will most likely be rushing you and will most likely score on their terrain. There's not much you can do about it, like you said. And like you also said, this is the only captain in the game that doesn't have march. So you'll have a tough time in getting to your terrain objective. Very likely, yes, with Legolas and your shooting, you can take down your target hero. But if they don't pick to protect the same hero that you're trying to target down... I don't know if your list has enough killing power to take down another hero once combat hits, because Legolas is not mounted in this list. And like Matt said, Toriel is going to, like, there's no mind games here. The opponent is going to pick Toriel if they know what they're doing. And very likely, in a long game, she's going to die. Like, in an 800-point list, most lists have enough to take down Toriel, because you're not really scared of the other heroes in the list, you know? And then also, like, your way of winning is to break the opponent from shooting as quick as you can. But the issue with that, this is fog of war. So if you break the opponent too soon, you might actually end up losing as well. Because that doesn't allow you to get your models across the board. So I honestly think this would be a tough, tough list to win with. Because even if you think you're winning by, like, shooting them down and, like, breaking them... You might just honestly lose on the spot when they like swarm your terrain piece and you know if they take down Toriel quick and then you break them and you still lose. So that's why I guess I'm not a fan of this Legion in general. The one counterpoint I have to that is because of the sheer volume of shooting, you could relatively easily just focus fire all the enemy models in front of your specific objective or that part of the board where your objective is and just kill all the enemy models there. And then do you just walk up a few, like, five or six guys onto it? Even though you're only moving six inches a turn, if there's nobody in front of you to stop you, you're going to be moving six inches around how many turns the game, la- how many turns the game lasts. So Wait, but, but you're saying, so instead of staying back and shooting, you're marching forward while shooting with your Mirkwood Rangers? I, Richard, I don't know. That's... <laughs> there's 40 of them, man. Like, it's like you're saying, in this in this game, like board positioning still matters. Yeah, yeah. No, so I, I, think... I understand that, but I guess it depends on the list you're coming up with, right? Like, you should, Yeah, you'd still want to move up. Yeah, like if yeah, if you sit on that twelve inch line until they get into combat with you, then yeah, you're you're probably not gonna do too well in the scenario. But because let's just say like you're coming up against a very basic like mortar list, like defense six, like black Numenorians and Moranans. I feel like because you need sixes to wound on your bow, so to break that list, 
I feel like if you're moving forward too soon, though, like there's no way that you're going to do enough damage. So I think in I general, think. this is just a tough list to do well with, you know? It's got a lot of really situational rules, like the spider hatred, the six plus save when you're close to forests. Like, yeah, those are really like dependent on the board and your opponent. And I don't think those will come into play. So it really just comes down to a slight buff to the Merkwood Rangers and just having no bow limit. I don't disagree with Richard. I think this list has a lot of weaknesses. The Sentinels also, their level of value also depends on your opponent. If they have high courage, if they have fearless, their Sentinels aren't going to do very much. So it really depends. There's a lot of factors you have to look at when you go into a game with this one. I think just about everything is said on both arguments here. I mean, the number of bows alone I find scary has a lot of models. But like Richard said, a lot of the strategy of a list like that involves sitting in place in a pretty defensive position, which, you know, if your shooting isn't excellent, it could really spell trouble for you if the game goes longer or if you defeat your enemy too quickly. So I'm I'm not going to add much just because I'll end up repeating anything that's already been said. Yep. Okay, so... When we were talking about lists for this, I remember in our other chat, Charles posted his with Legolas, and I was like, no, I wanted to have Legolas in my list, because he's so good at, like, just getting you the, that, like, those three VPs, to which I received multiple comments of, oh, get some new material, <laughs> and fair enough, so I went for something completely different. I have an evil list. It is an alliance. I'll just dive right into it. It's not very complicated. The first warband is the Necromancer, and he has eight Gundabad Orcs with shield, seven Gundabad Orcs with spear and shield, and one Gundabad Orc with spear, shield, and banner. My second warband is Azog. He has heavy armor and the white warg, and in his warband he has seven Gundabad Orcs with shield, six Gundabad Orcs with spear and shield, and one warbat. So, as you might be able to guess, with this, I am very much going to be trying to kill the opponent's hero and protect my own hero. And the key to that is making Azog the leader of the force. So if Azog is the leader of the force, you can choose to protect the Necromancer. In which case, the model you're trying to protect has D8 and, what, 25 potential fate points? Yeah, 25. Also, both of them are very good at killing enemy heroes. By that I mean Azog obviously has his 3 plus to wound enemy hero, so he can go and just mush a hero in a turn quite easily. Combine that with the Necromancer being able to pull enemy heroes out with uh, Compel, or otherwise I can just, you know, target the enemy model with Chill Soul and just slowly wear him down to kill him. Yeah, and I guess finally I have a Warbat, so the plan with that is keep it safe for most of the game, and then on that last turn do the Mad Dash and jump him onto your terrain piece. General thoughts? Does anybody have any comments first? Oh, wait. I do have one thing that was pointed out to me earlier in the other chat. I forgot that you can target the White Warg. It says so in the FAQs. So the opponent can choose to target that as the um, the model, the hero they want to kill. However, I feel like he's reasonably well protected because of the massive Azog sitting on top of him. So it's not ideal, but he's like relatively okay. The worst thing for that like to happen would be if he came up against a Legolas. Because even if you come up against a Radagast, if he gets um, panic steeded, the White Warg doesn't run away. He stays on the table. Or 40 Mirkwood Rangers. Or 40 Mirkwood Rangers. That, that that would be bad as well. <laughs> Did you say Necromancer was your leader? No, so I'd make Azog the leader. 
So then you can protect the Necromancer in the Fog of War scenario. Yes. Okay, so I agree with that choice. But if you were going into a tournament, decent players would probably pick the Necromancer as the leader. Because in all the other scenarios, he's easier to protect, right? And because he has up to 25 fate and he's just in the back, you don't have to throw him in. I'm just saying that it's a little bit unrealistic that you would pick Azog as a leader. I would actually um, agree with Ian here, because he actually gets the army bonus if Azog's the leader. So I think, yeah, it's a little riskier, but you you get Master of Battle, which you don't if Necromancer is your leader. Would you do that if you were going to tournament, knowing that all the other scenarios, if you would be harder to protect, you think it's still worth the Master of Battle? I think if you know Fog of War is in there. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's the case, if you know Fog of War is in there, then this is viable. Also, if, like, Clash of Champions is in there, then this this, this setup is viable, right? Also, Master yeah. Battle is really good. I guess it's Which, uh, packet-dependent, really, you know? Um, if it was a I, random... Even then, though, Master of Battle is so good, I think I'd still be tempted, yeah, just for the Master of Battle, even if it was a random selection one. Yeah, fair enough. I feel like at the points value of the Necromancer... I really want him in there as my leader if I'm paying that much for him. He can only cast, you know, so many times in a game, and what's his best attribute is his fate, you know? Everyone is going to completely avoid him, so I feel like I have to take the Necromancer as my leader unless I, like, see three scenarios that are, like, right up Azog's alley. The Master Battle's amazing. You know, we can't deny that, though. Ian, as for your comment about the White Warg, yeah, I think as long as there's no easy way for the enemy to dismount him or, like, you don't decide to dismount him and run the Warg away to protect it, I don't think it matters that much that your enemy picks a warp because they share fate points and might points anyway. So, like, yeah, he is easier to wound because he doesn't have armor. But, like, you know what I mean, right? Because, like, if he consistently wins fights, the warp's not going to take very many hits. So I don't think that that's a big issue. I guess the only issue is shooting magic can still get the warp. But other than that, it's I don't think it's a big issue. Your list looks pretty solid. It's mostly defense six. Like you said, the Chill Soul is really good at picking targets just because it's an instant wound. You don't have to roll to wound like a Black Dart. I think in the Necromancer episode, we said that we wish that casting range was better on the Necromancer, so you might have to get a little bit close, but it's still a great spell. It's still a 12-inch, so it's it's not terrible. Yeah, yeah. No, I like this list in Fog of War. If... Not for any other reason. I like this list because in a list in Fog of War where your opponent only has two heroes and they're both tough and one of them is the leader, it means you have to go after the other one. So you've removed any form of guessing as to what your opponent has to target and it helps you work out the rest of how to play the game knowing exactly what one of your opponent's targets has to be, especially when it's something tough like in this case, like you said, you were going to select Azog as the leader, which leaves the Necromancer open, which is like good luck uh, wounding the Necromancer in this game. So it it's a relatively safe three points. And then that also means you can send Azog out. He actually has three uh, heroes, not two. He's got the, the White Warg. Yeah. But again, like Ian said, the White Warg having a large Azog sitting on top of it is uh, still not a super easy target. I don't know, at least in that case, you've got the mobility with the Warg to be able to move around, escape positions where you're getting stuck, move around and regroup. So that's useful. Yeah, I I like the list. I guess the only thing that hasn't been mentioned is maybe I'd worry a little bit about the model count. 
At 32 models, it's the smallest army, but I guess having all defense six is kind of mitigates that a little bit. But I would say that it makes it a bit tougher to maybe protect your own terrain. And originally I was kind of thinking how I could maybe place a goblin mercenary captain in here, but I guess with the points values and the heroes you chose, it's kind of tougher. But I guess what I think Goblin Mercenary Captain would be pretty great in Fog of War because you can choose the captain as a hero to protect. And, you know, by the time it comes onto the board, you can place it like in an area where the enemy will most likely not be able to get to unless they put way too much resources into. And also, of course, like whether you want to place it defensively or offensively, like you're going to be playing one of the terrain objectives you, you know and and i would say like not even put like obviously a full warband like maybe even put like one or just two goblins with the with the captain so like a very very small warband so you can fit on most terrains too yeah i was toying with that idea when i was initially writing this up and i think the only way it fits in with these two heroes is at a thousand you just kind of bump the model count, bump the toys, like some more Warbats, and then you go for for the, the Mercenary Captain. I do like this list in some ways, but the point about the model count is good. I think this list is written very strongly for the hero assassination and protection victory points, but I think it's going to struggle with the breaking and with the terrain. So I feel like, depending on the matchup, depending on the player's skill level, this is kind of like a 50-50 go in Fog of War. I want to say if a newer player is taking this list, it's going to be really difficult for them to pull out a win on this one. But I feel like a higher level player could make it work. Yeah, it's tough to pick any of these heroes. As we said, the White Warg might be easier for somebody with Legolas. But if you have a force, like, I don't know, let's say a Mordor, pure Mordor force going up against it, you know, what are you going to do to knock Azog off that Warg? You know, you can't even wound it if it's going to be charging all the time. So I think it's solid, but like, I think I made my point pretty clear. I think it's 50-50 depending on who you're going up against in the skill level, so... Alex, you want to go with your list? All right, let's uh, let's end with some disappointment. Um, uh, I don't hate this list, so I'll give it a shot. I've got Elian over here. It's a fantastic way to start off. <laughs> I was gonna say this thing. Good way to start. I don't hate this list, so. Yeah, I love the confidence. Ellen Collie too. <laughs> I've had Haladir in a few lists in previous episodes. None of them have gone well. Well, I'll just say, I already see Haldir with a bow here, so it's already improved. I was going to make that joke. You beat me to that one, because I was going to be like, yeah, I'm not making that mistake again. Richard, he beat you to Casa Doom, but you got him on the Haldir bow. <laughs> yeah. Richard and I have just exchanged points on this one. I think we're at even one and one tonight. Ding, ding. Thanks, Ian. We don't have the sound effects installed yet, so you're going to have to make do. I have Eladine over here, horse and heavy armor. Four high elf warriors with shield, three with shield and spear, four with elf bow, Galadriel, four Galadrim warriors with shield, one with shield and spear, one with shield, spear, and banner, two Galadrim warriors with elf bow, one guard of the Galadrim court, two Galadrim knights with shield and elf bow, and Haldir with heavy armor and elf bow, three Galadrim warriors with shield, two with shield and spear, two with elf bow, one guard of the Galadrim court. One uh, Galadrim Knight with shield and elf bow, and one wood elf warrior with no additional war gear. It's 800 points, 36 models, breaks at 19, 11 bows, plus Haldir's two shots, 12 might, 
strategy here is uh, I think I've got a relatively good mixture of mobility to go grab my objective with Eldan Elwood here, both mounted three Galadrim Knights. And then I have relatively decent amount of shooting, including uh, Haldir's bow. Yes, his bow with might points to be able to modify that if I need it to be used that way. Other than that, you know, a lot of fight five with shields just to kind of go out there and tie up my opponent and either win combats or die slowly because they're fight five and they're going to be relatively tough to bring down. Aside from that, you know, I've got good magic support from Galadriel. Twins, I think, are going to be solid in combat. Got to kind of be careful because of their special rule. So I think that mixture should allow me to both target my opponent and pick either of the twins to protect or most likely protect Haldir because he'll sit further in the back and be taking shots at things. Aside from that, I particularly like the Galadrim Knights for this scenario particularly, just because they have all the different rules that you need to really make use of them to go after objectives. Somewhere between having resistance to magic because of the army bonus, expert rider, fleet foot, woodland creatures, so they just move through everything at normal speed. They can go around my opponent and kind of just pester uh, my opponent's flanks with some bowfire, so they can do a number of things. Uh, I think of all my lists with Haldir, this is the best one. It might not say a ton, but yeah. I guess I have a question before I talk about it. So ignoring the fact that you wouldn't know what list you're coming up against in my scenario here, who would you choose to protect the majority of this time in this list? Well, I can't protect Galadriel. So I'm inclined to say Haldir just because he's two wounds, one fate, fight six, heroic strike, and because he's not mounted he would sit back a lot more. I think he'd be kind of the more obvious choice, a lot tougher to get to, unless my opponent has, you know, a siege weapon or something that fires directly over top of everything. But at the same time, I, I feel like I could protect one of the twins just because of their mobility, fight six, rook strike, defense six, you know. I guess when I'm looking at this list, like if I'm playing it, I see the twins, and I've I've seen some games where, you know, if your opponent picks one of them and murders them, your other guy's sprinting across the field. You know, I feel like you got to play perfectly with them in this scenario. You know, you also mentioned using them for, like, the mobility for the terrain piece, but, you know, how dangerous would it be to separate one of them if the other one's a target? So I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. And then, yeah, Heldier might be the obvious choice sometimes, but I'm just wondering, like, who would I protect, I guess? I guess I'm wondering out loud, and, you know, that's why I wanted to hear your answer, because Seems like a tough list of heroes to try to want to protect. None of them are very sturdy. I mean, Eladon and Elver here are cool and all, but they still are only, like, what, two wounds, two fate, and defense six, if I'm not mistaken? I feel yeah. like one bad combat when they get charged could go really poorly for them, so. This list can either do really well, or, you know, if, if something goes wrong with one of the twins, yeah, they're just kind of a powder keg just waiting to, to go wrong there. I'd pick them specifically in this list because felt like I needed the combat heroes and the might points, so they'd kind of merge into that to fill that need. The reason I say that they're good for the mobility is if I have them sitting around late game and I need, for instance, a heroic move and they're next to one of the, the knights, uh, they can go off and do that. But no, I wouldn't be throwing either of them out in the open unless it was like the last turn and I was throwing them at the objective because uh, one of them gets taken down in the open field and the whole game unravels. So 
I think knowing that though, Alex, like I hundred percent agree with Matt. Like I think if we're building for a fog of war, especially, I don't think Aladdin or an Elro here are good picks. Cause I think the common, you know, argument here is whether you take the twins or Glorfindel. And I think in this case, in fog of war, definitely Glorfindel comes out on top because there's a lot tougher fortify spirit, you know, and yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you can't protect the twins to a point where if they're not in combat, then you wasted 190 points on them. But everything else, yes, like much improved. I think this is a strong and well-rounded list. I think if we're talking in the scope of a tournament, I would maybe think about not having a heroic march in there might matter. But I think in Fog of War, it's kind of okay, given that you have enough cav. So yeah, I like it. The twins are good in a lot of other scenarios, but just maybe not in this case. I do think that if you were to take this to a tournament, well, it depends what the other scenarios are in the rules pack. But if you were to play this list and not change anything about it, definitely pick Haldir for the reasons given. I also think that you can keep him safe more easily. Like he can stand in Galadriel's blinding light. Galadriel can also restore his fate. So if he doesn't take too many wounds, Galadriel can usually keep his fate at his one, his store. Also something that I considered with the twins, I can help kind of make them a bit more resilient by renewing their fate points. That's true, Um, but you take wounds more quickly in combat, so it'd be more tricky for that to work out. But, like, if Haldir's out of combat, then it's kind of hard to kill him with just shooting, usually. I do like how you went with the Galadrim Knights, though, because the Rivendell Knights are maybe, like, one point more, so it's tempting to go with the Rivendell Knights for the lands, but you'd make a good point about the Fleet Foot and the Expert Rider. I think for Fog of War, they are pretty good. I would say what you can do with this list is in classic Fog of War style, you give Haldir the Elven Cloak, and you talk that up a lot, and you say, wow, this guy's got an Elven Cloak and a bow. He can just sit here the whole time, the whole game, totally out of your sphere of influence and just shoot two turns a turn. I think he, he I should really protect him. And then you pick one of the twins to protect. <laughs> but yeah, it's solid enough. I like the knights, like you guys said. And then Galadriel can obviously do protecting things like immobilize any targets going after your hero you're trying to protect or pull the enemy hero out to get him mobbed by a couple of twins. So, yeah, solid. Okay, so in terms of ranking our five lists for today, and to listeners, if you have been following along our lists, you can find our lists on Facebook. Just search our page Into the West podcast and you should be able to find all of our lists posted so you can follow along with us. So ranking these five lists today, do we have a clear winner of which we think is the best in Fog of War? I can start. For me, I think it's either going to be Richard's uh, Kingdom of Moria or Matt's Last Lions. I think those two are the strongest. I need maybe a few minutes to debate which one out of the two. Uh, What do you guys think? I'm right there with you, I think, if I'm being honest. Matt votes for himself, and I, and I I don't blame him. I'm in the same position right now, somewhere between Matt's and Richard's. Richard's might partially just be my own uh, bias towards Kazadoom, and Matt's might be because he used a ring emoji next to the bit where it says Isildur Horse Shield Ring ring emoji, and I, I really appreciated that. No, but they're, they're both very, very strong lists. I think something I like about both of them is that sometimes when we build these lists, it feels like they're very just geared towards the one scenario, but I could see these doing really, really, really well in just a general tournament pack or, you know, a random selection tournament pack. 
I think I'm on Matt's a little bit more because I, Richards can do all of the same things well, but I think Matt's can do it faster. And if you're at a tournament playing Fog of War, especially it's not one of those scenarios, even at a tournament time limit game, starting 24 inches apart, that's a big thing. That just makes it harder. Like once you get into combat and things are happening, you just the amount of time you have is very significantly reduced. So I think the Last Alliance one wins it out for me because it can do what it needs to do faster. Yeah, I'll be humble here, and I will go the route I do think Matt's edges mine out in Fog of War. But I will say, if there's a scenario with Banner, I got two, he's got none. I'm done. <laughs> we'll just go to lunch early. I'll concede, you know? <laughs> I don't want to play your list in one of those scenarios where we got a 50-50 board and we're starting right up in the front. <laughs> Who gets third place, do you guys think? Uh, Ian's list. Initially, I was thinking Ian, too, but the model count got brought up a few times. And, and like Ian has a lot of utility and hitting power, but what if he doesn't have enough time and he breaks turn four or five and he hasn't killed his target yet or he hasn't gotten his objective yet? That's what worries me. I mean, conversely... If that list breaks early, but I get the kill on the opponent hero and I get some guys on my terrain piece because I'm hopefully up in their half, it ends before they can swamp the rest of my list and get to their objective or bring down one of my heroes. Because like the way you bring down those two heroes or the white war them is just you need time to wear down the stats, right? I don't know what the answer to that is, though. <laughs> Losing to win. I think that's what Ian's going for here. If he can so, do enough damage and then die quickly. I will say seeing Ian's list, I've, I've happened to play a lot of guys locally who like over the years a lot of azog's legion like pits lately and stuff like that the list is surprisingly easy to break and if you're playing a somebody who's got like maybe a horde list or a lot of shooting and they're taking extra time like there is a shoot phase in your game it's going to take maybe a couple minutes each turn you know you're going to have a few turns where azog list is just taking casualties probably and a couple turns where you're not playing you're just moving trying to get the combat so it's going to be difficult i think you could threaten the terrain piece and maybe keep your hero but it's tough because if you have, I guess from my personal experience running Azog, if you have a few turns where you're just not rolling hot with him, he's going to move so slow, you need him to do a lot of heavy lifting. And if the dice are not coming up for you, it's going to be tough. I mean, look at all our lists, right? How many more models do we all have on average? You know, it's a, it's like a few. But, you know, if you're getting shot before you get to combat, it's going to keep increasing until you get there. It's just tough. I mean, I still think it's a solid third place choice, but it's it's tough. Something that just occurred to me, I haven't read through Shroud's Shadows recently, but if you cast it on Azog, would that protect him from shooting? Does it mean you can't get shot at? I don't actually know. Yeah, yeah it does. You okay, because it's like the ring, right? Yeah. yeah. I just thought about that. That's, that could be helpful to keep the white ward around. If I'm being honest, I think the Merkwood list takes fifth just because you only get so much to work with. Like, it's a you know predetermined list for you. You can't just pick what you want out of it, and I think it's just really difficult to build with that list. Again, I, I think that one's completely dependent on matchup. I'm not going to reiterate Richard's points, but like you did a good job, but you didn't have a lot to work with. And that's all I really have to say. And, and that goes for the same of a lot of the Legendary Legions. It was a courageous choice picking a Legendary Legion in a tough scenario with a lot of thinking involved, you know? So. You guys agree with Matt? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I actually think that if Alex had changed the Toyons to Glorfindel, I might even put it before Ian's list, just because it has a bit more numbers and is shooting and is magic. So it, it is more like well-rounded. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that, too. I just think because Galadriel's magic is a lot more consistent, I think, than the, the Wood Elf Sentinels. So that just gives him a lot more like control and tricks he can do. Same with like the movement from the Knights. That's really nice. 
All right, so that has been our Fog of War list discussion. Let's move on to our open topic. Today we'll be ranking the neighboring rates. all nine of them from best to worst and we've each brought our own lists and we're going to compare and have a debate on our choices and just see how different they are so we're gonna have five different rankings today i guess the easiest way is just to start off with one of our lists and then person after can kind of give their list and then compare to see where they're different and then kind of give our reasons why so Let's have Ian start with his ranking of the nine ring rates and maybe just go like a brief description of your choices from one to nine and then we'll have the second person go. Okay, uh, I guess I'll start from the top. That's kind of, I think, the one that, that we all pretty much agreed on anyway, having seen all the lists. And number one, I have the Witch King. I feel like that one is pretty self-explanatory. You know, with the crown, he can fight, he can cast magic well, he has heroic strike, he can get three points of bite, which I think he might be the only one of the ring race who can do that now. I think so. So he can just do everything, and he can do everything pretty well. And he, he also scales well up to different points levels, right, depending on the kit you run him with, right? Like, it's not uncommon just to see him on the horse with the crown, right? You don't need to go for the full 200-something points and give him the um, the fell beast, right? So I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. He's he's great. My second place, I gave to Kamul the Easterling, which I feel like is a bit more controversial. And now that I'm saying it out loud, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not the best pick for second place, but... I, I, the thing that I found alluring Jim is he's the only other wraith that has strike, and I think we all know how good Felbeasts can be. And the one thing that's holding back Felbeasts in this edition, why you don't see them as much, is because most of the wraiths don't have strike. So because he can do that, and he can like boost his stats up too to like fight six, so he's pretty good on a Felbeast. So if you want to run a ring wraith on a Felbeast, I think it's a pretty big toss up between him and the Witch King. So if you want that role filled, I think he does that really well. Third place, I have the Betrayer. Same kind of thing. I haven't gotten a chance to run him on a Felbeast this, or actually, well, in a, in a while, but I think he does it very well. Kind of like a mini Spider Queen, like minus the fight value. But the bigger thing is just having him in a supporting role in a Harad list. It's disgusting. That reroll ability is just, it's horrendous. Yeah. Fourth place, I have the Shadow Lord. This is purely because shooting lists are very prominent right now, and he stops shooting. Also, I think he's one of the more reasonable rates at casting, right? He's got good values at casting, I think. Can somebody confirm that? He's got about yes. average casting. He's, like, up there with the... the I, I feel like there's two tiers. I feel like there's the combat race, the Betrayer, Kamul, Knight of Umbar, and then the rest of them. Yeah, yeah, so he's not a combat one. His magic is, is reasonable compared to the other ones. Yeah. And then what do I have in five? In five... I have the Undying, you know, he's, he's the casting Wraith. If you want a Wraith just to cast and you don't feel like going for the Witch King, you can go for him. He's just fine. He does what he needs to do. Yeah, I feel like with that one and then the next one, you could probably, like, swap them either way. It doesn't make a huge difference to me. So the next one being in sixth place, the Dark Marshal. And I feel like I've said this before on the podcast, but if you want a Wraith who can do everything just okay, 
go for him. <laughs> like, he, he's kind of very, very average to me. Like, he has the fight six, which is nice, so you can make him a combat wraith on the fell beast. He also has the banner ability, so then he's supporting your army. So he can do everything, but he can do everything just kind of okay. So around the middle of the list seems fine to me. And then I got to be honest, guys, the last three, it's kind of like, eh, they're all kind of gimmicky or just like not great. So in seven, I have the Tainted, and I always mix up what special rule. Which one is his special rule? The Tainted. Um, He's the one okay. that pre- prevent warriors from benefiting he's, from he's the Stanfast. And Stanfast. Yep. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's why he, he's so got a he's, second one, but that's his will costing one. Yeah. So actually, uh, never mind. The last two, they're both kind of garbage. This one is actually, like, he, he's actually not bad. He has reasonable casting. He has that special rule, which can be very helpful. And you can also build around that special rule and do specific builds. Like, I think, Charles, you kind of, like, I think you probably played around with that maybe with the catapults, have you? Maybe? No, but I've seen people use it with great beasts. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Stop them from charging? Anyway, so he, he has, like, the specific ways you can build around it and make him useful, but that's about it. The next one I have is the Knight of Ombar, and i got to be honest with you. He's supposed to be a combat wraith, but he just, like, doesn't do it very well. Like, if he had Heroic Strike, he'd probably be way higher in the list. Because he doesn't, it's very restricted what he can do. And yeah, his magic casting isn't good. And then, in last place, I have the Dwemer Lake. What can you say? He's got a two-handed weapon and only that for whatever reason, so he's terrible in combat. And then, you know, his special rule is just pretty lackluster. Like, you're spending will to have a 50% chance to make the opponent use more resources. Just doesn't seem like a great trade to me. Yeah? Thoughts? Richard, do you want to go over your ranking? And you can comment on Ian's and, like, how yours is different. Okay, so I guess ours are pretty similar. The way I categorized it was based on the thinking of, you know, competitive choices. So, you know, they could obviously fit in different army types and some are more flexible than others. But as long as they still have a competitive option, I still rank them fairly high. The Witch King, I would say that I agree with Ian's points. And I think one more thing is that it's just the customization. I think being able to be so flexible as well as being really efficient is key because a lot of these other ones are maybe good in specific lists or just not good at all. But the Witch King is good in multiple different packages and ways that you can build them. So he's just top tier. I have the Shadow Lord a little higher than Ian just because I feel like he's still pretty, I guess, common in a lot of metas. I I understand that not all metas will have shooting, but, you know, I think us and a lot of other podcasts have talked about how strong shooting is. So this is like the evil's blinding light, you know, and we all know how good that is. So it's just really good, and there's no replacement for it. There's no other model where you're like, oh, can I take something else in lieu of the Shadow Lord? So he doesn't have that replacement. Third is Betrayer, same as Ian. I think he has more of a niche role, but like, you know, he's very, very competitive in a Haradrim list. I have Kamul lower, similar to the Betrayer. He is mostly taken in an Easterling list, but I just don't feel like he's an auto-take, or he's taken even as much as the Betrayer in the Haradrim list, but he is solid. And then the next few, a Dying Dark Marshal, you know, similar to Ian's rankings as well. And they are pretty interchangeable. 
Oh, and I guess Tainted is the same as well at number seven. Number eight and number nine I have switched because I really hate the Knight of Umbar, so he's my last place. Because he really doesn't do anything. Like, yeah, he's supposed to be good at combat, but he's just terrible. Like, aside from giving him Heroic Strike to buff him, what they could also do is make his ability actually useful by doing the copy after a Heroic Strike or something like that. Because at this point, it's like any hero with Heroic Strike is still going to just nullify his special rule. So, And he's a bad caster, so what is he really doing? At least the Dwemer Lake, as bad as he is, it's like you're going to kind of have fun with him and do something different. You know, you're kind of being a, uh, doing something similar to Grima Wormtongue, you know, trying to suck resources. And I feel like even though it's not the best ability, you might be able to build it in a way where a list where you really punish the opponent somehow for not having enough might. And even if it's giving up a little bit of efficiency, maybe that's the kind of ability you want. Because, like, at least he does something. The Knight of Bombard just doesn't do anything. So that's my list. You may have convinced me on the last two there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think all of us have the Witch King first. It's obviously my first rank as well, because for many reasons, the versatility can't be matched. I have Kamul as a second one. Wait, wait. Sorry to interrupt you, Charles. Actually, I think you have the exact same list as Ian, except for the last two. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yeah, I do. Wow, I did not notice that. Okay. Okay. Great mind, something, something. And then if I'm switching the last two to Richard's order, then does it? do we have the same list? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll just I guess I'll just kind of go over the picks that I think might be a little more uncommon. So I think I see a lot of people put Shadow Lord in second or third. I might even seen it first, but the Shadow Lord is really, really valued, I feel like, in competitive play. I put it as fourth, just below Betrayer. I still think it's really good. So the reason why I did that is because I feel like when you put the Betrayer in a Serpent Horde list, it's a win condition. He's one of your strategies to win with. He's the one that gives all of your rerolls. When you put a Shadow Lord in a list, it might help you, depending on your opponent and depending if you start far away and you have to march out your opponent. That's what makes a difference for me. It's very small. I put Betrayer before Shadow Lord is because you're going into the game already knowing what he's going to do. Shadow Lord, you don't know for sure if he's going to help you. And then the next two are kind of just solid ones, but not auto-takes. Like, Undying, I wish his ability that costs a will was better. Because essentially, it costs a will to do it. And because it costs a will to do it, you need multiple casters in the list to make it worth it. So I actually think that you take the Undying for his secondary ability, which is uh, the using will as fate, which is kind of weird. The Dark Marshal is really good. I actually really like a Fight 6 hero on a Fell Beast. It's just... His banner only affects warriors, and that's kind of what puts a sour taste in my mouth. I think if it was just a banner effect, or even a banner, he would be like two ranks up. The Tainted, I think, is a little bit underrated. I have him lower because his benefits are really situational, but I can see situations where he would be good. I played against a player who used it with Great Beasts, and I think it was great, because essentially on turns that you have priority, you can ensure that your models will go first, because neither side can benefit from heroic moves in that six-inch bubble. So on turns where you have priority, it's almost like it's guaranteed. 
And then for the last two, I think, similar to what Richard said, Dwarven Lake is slightly more useful, but they're both really bad. Like, when you have a two-handed weapon, and this hasn't been mentioned yet, but Dwarven Lake has no might. So a hero that always has to go two-handed with no might, he basically can never be in combat, or you never want him to be in combat, which means you would never take a Felbeast, because Felbeast, generally, you want it for the monster's charge, right? Generally. His debuff is kind of nice, and what puts him slightly above Knight of Umbar is it does synergize with Angmar lists, because Angmar is all about stacking debuffs, right? You know, you take the Shade, you take Barrel Weiss to weaken enemies, and you have a lot of terror. I think Tourmalade can really synergize with that. Not efficiently, because you don't get a lot for what you pay, but at least it adds to your army, adds to your strategy. Knight of Umbar is another one of those, similar to Thine Dying, where his secondary special rule is better than his primary, like, the, the, his armor that he doesn't lose will when he wins a fight, it, it kind of tells you something when your secondary rule is better than your primary. But you wouldn't take the Knight of Unbar just for his armor. It's not good enough. That's what makes him last place. Alex? Okay, so my list is a little bit flipped around in a couple of spots from some of you guys. First is the Witch King. Second is Kamul, because he can still strike, and even though he's not taken maybe as much as he used to be, if you want to put a Nazgul on a Felbeast, he's probably the one to do it with. He's pretty decent that way. Three and four are a little bit interchangeable. I put the Tainted up pretty high by comparison to you guys, mostly because I look at his special rule about being able to nullify opponent's ability for their troops to respond to heroic actions. Incredibly useful in situations, specifically in Angmar, uh, when you win priority. If you play one of those very orc-heavy Angmar lists where you have some spirit heroes and Angmar, you're going to have a ton of orcs, and so if you can nullify your opponent's ability to heroic move when you've won priority, you're really opening up space for your orcs to go and, and trap things, for to get your heroes in there. So I actually really like his special rule. Of course, my analysis is relatively theoretical. Four, which could have also been three to an extent, the betrayer, just because he buffs the entire army around him, because there's so much in the way of poison weapons and poison arrows. In with the uh, Haradrim, he can make them really lethal from distance. Five, I've got the Undying, probably because I've, got, I've still got a bit of a soft spot for the Undying, because I was a big Undying player in the last edition. He's a very good spellcaster. He's resilient just because he can use his will as fate still, and that doesn't cost him a will point to activate. His first special rule doesn't really do anything anymore because you're going to need minimum three spellcasters just to make it do anything that you've got to spend a will point. But it wasn't huge for me in the last edition either. After that, I've got the Dark Marshal just because he's fight six, so he'll at least be above the troop level in most games. The banner effect, to me, is the biggest deal, just because, again, buffing his troops, really big banner, which when you've got a ton of orcs, is really useful. I put the Shadow Lord down at 7th, partially just because when I play Mortar, I, I have, of course, played against very bow-heavy armies, and it becomes a bit of a struggle to get into combat fast enough. But I often find that if I can move up fast enough, take advantage of terrain, having Pall of Darkness isn't my greatest concern. And then, of course, the last two just got the Knight of Umbar and the Dwemer Lake. The Knight of Umbar, his special rule, sounds nice, but the way it's worded, he just gets outstruck. He doesn't have heroic strike anymore. He can't fight against standard troops. He, 
his role was very much as uh, targeting heroes, but when he can't even match them, he's just almost never worth the points. And then the Drummer Lake, because he has no might and he might as well be unarmed. It's bad. It doesn't matter which way you want to put it. I think they could both be fixed, but yeah, as they are now. Those two at the bottom, they're bad. Matt, you good? Yeah, all right. So um, I am here to make enemies with my list, and I don't know how many of your listeners are going to enjoy it. Let's go, though. It's going to be a roller coaster. Are we right? So what's funny is, like, when I first heard this topic, I was like, okay, I played a lot of Ring Race in the last edition, and um, the more I read into this and looked up what I was going to say, the more I enjoyed doing this. So I'm going to go in ascending order. We're going to start at the bottom. I kind of got these guys in three tiers here, all right? Numbers eight and nine, nine being the Knight of Umbar, eight being the Dwemer Lake. I'm not going to repeat what any of you said. Go back to the summer of 2018, year of the old edition, and that's all I really got to say. They're just not that great. They were amazing before, and right now, they're just bottom tier. Number seven for me is going to be the Shadow Lord. Ooh, I know. He's so deep down, dark there in Moria. But I just think with the addition of so many of these new mobile scenarios, like Command the Battlefield, weird stuff you're moving around, you know, I just think his um, he's in the pretty much middle tier here. I don't think he's bad at all. I just feel like in the last edition, he's one of those models you always take to conventions if you're running Mordor, you know? His casting's good, his might, will, and fate's pretty good, but other than that six-inch bubble, you know, what are you going to do? You might be playing a melee-heavy um, all-mounted Rohan with Goblin Town, Return of the King, Legendary Legion, Far Harad, Half-Troll Spam. He's literally useless in all those matchups, and these are competitive tournament armies. I guess I might not have been going to conventions as much as people the last few years. None of us have really been the last two years. But maybe I'm wrong about the meta and what I see out there, but I feel like there's a lot of heavy melee things when conventions are fully on the rise again, they're going to take over the meta. I don't think shooting is going to be as predominant as we think it is right now. So going up to number six, and this is going to be a fun one. So how is it pronounced where the Eastlings come from? Is it Rune or Run? It's Rune. Rune? Okay. So um, from the land of Rune, Kamul berated the Easterling. I think Kamul has always been one of the most overrated Easterling, or, or excuse me, Ringwraith models. And I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but I'm coming from a perspective where when I'm thinking about these ring rates, most of the time I'm taking them on fell beasts and I'm not taking them on horses. Okay. When you're taking Kamul, what do you want to do with him? You want to kill things, right? You're probably putting him on a fell beast most of the time. If you don't, I don't really understand what you're going for because you have better options for killing. I mean, when I'm looking at the profile, you know, he could increase his attacks he could increase his strength, right? But these are things that are just better when you have a fell beast anyway. So to me, they're honestly mostly useless. The strike is great, of course, and upping your fight value is great. But honestly, I feel like Kamul is somebody who always has somebody who could do what he does a little bit better. If you really want to kill stuff and assassinate things, the betrayer's out there. I know he doesn't have strike, but that's the only thing that he doesn't have. If you want more might, the Witch King's there. The Witch King has a Crown of Morgul and killing power too. I just think Kamul is actually a detriment to the Easterlings as well, because with that army, you want your numbers up, and he's just going to cost you a lot of points. I think he's, in my opinion, the most overrated model since I got back into the game out of these nine. I still don't think he's bad. Don't get me wrong. Getting your will back by munching down troops is excellent, but I think we've all run big heroes enough that eventually smashing yourselves in a troop repeatedly, you're not just going to get that dice roll that you need, and eventually it's going to be a roll-off that you lose, and he's going to have some issues. I just had a lot to say about him because I've always thought it was so funny how people are so obsessed with him. Going up to number five, is it Tainted? I'm not going to go into too much. I think Seeping Decay is pretty cool. I think it's a buff that people don't talk about. 
because a lot of times what you want to do is swarm enemy ring race to try to kill them off the board. And he has a device built into him that prevents people from wanting to add models onto him by possibly taking wounds, right? So I thought that was pretty interesting. Fighting off heroic moves and standfasts, especially at the end of the game, I just think that in the hands of a very skilled player, he's very underrated. I think he could be really good. And then again, he's got great might, will, and fate, and his casting solid. Number four, I got the Undying. Still hard to kill. I think he suffered a little bit this edition because, you know, there's not all Felbeast lists and there's like a little bit less to cast. But at the end of the day, you got the Witch King, you got Cardouche, so he's still going to be completely useful. Not much else to say against him. One of the only knocks I do have on him, nobody said this yet, but he's a hero of Valor. So if you're taking him in the Mortar list, you willingly have to sacrifice putting the Witch King in your list to make him your leader if your point is to keep him alive with his fate rolls. So it's kind of a weird situation where I've written lists in Mortar and I'm like, I'm taking out the Witch King because he's sturdier, but the Witch King could strike and you could just put three fate on him and he's got defense eight anyway. How much trouble are you putting your Ring Wraith in that he needs like 20 will to use his fate? I think the Witch King is fine. And again, I hate to say this with all these models, but like if you're comparing him to the Witch King, you know, Dark Marshall, I have him at number three. I understand it's a little bit high up there, but basically my two through seven choices are all just a little bit off. I think a six-inch banner is amazing. He's got the fight six built in, and his casting's decent. I really like him. There's not much else to say. He's straightforward, and I think he's just a great, good buff troop. I think he's one of the ring race I wouldn't mind taking on a horse to save some points. Bumping up your numbers, keeping that Mordor bonus is really important because it's excellent. Again, what means a lot to me is taking these guys in the list that they're supposed to be in, too, and how useful they are there, which is why I'm going with number two, the Betrayer incredible buff for his army i've seen this guy melt defense seven lines with his rerolls on poison weapons against people like i've seen cause of doom lines go to pieces his might will and fate is good his casting's not great but we have a new uh, scenario in this book recently assassination he's a perfect assassin as well one bad roll and he's taking someone off the field you know one bad roll being the enemy who he's rolling against i think he's an amazing assassin the best buffer um out of any of these ring rates and fights five he can't strike okay but if you're fighting anybody who's fight four and below, you have no trouble just throwing him into troops and just wiping him off the field. I think he's underrated as well. Number one, the Witch King. I don't have a lot to say. The only thing I have to say is that nobody has really talked about the fact that he's the only hero of Legend Ring Wraith. All the other ones are Valor. I think a lot of evil lists suffer from the courage checks at the end of the game. And I know the Ring Wraiths have good courage, but he guarantees you one pass and then you have the high courage after that. I think that's an excellent thing. He was my favorite in the last edition when some of the other ones were considered OP. And now they gave him the crown of Morgul, which is ridiculous. I can't tell you how much I love the Witch King. But there's my list. Let's hear what everybody else has to say about other people's choices. I, I just want to say uh, the point that you made on the Undying, that's pretty on theme for uh, our topic today, Fog of War. Because if you play him with the Witch King, man, that would be a tough secondary hero to kill. I guess uh, it seems like you all rank Shadow Lord lower than I did. Even though I think generally the community like values him quite a lot, especially you, Matt. I think you put him quite low. But I guess my defense for this is that if it is like a standard like D6 Mordor list with like a bunch of marches across the list, okay, I can kind of see where like he's not like the Witch King where you just throw the Shadow Lord in every single list. I agree with that. I think people need to think a bit more in which list to put him in. I guess where I'm thinking is if you build a more specialized list, you know, you start adding in dark denizens of Mirkwood with spiders, low defense models, or like contingent of goblins, 
or things like that where you're really, really scared of shooting, which there's a lot of evil armies that, like, you're just terrified of coming up against a shooting list, especially if you're playing a good versus evil tournament. So I think that's why I really value Shadow Lord. And, like, it's just a unique ability because the other stuff, like, as good as the Betrayer is, like, and Kamul is, like, those are just killing power, right? And you can always find killing power elsewhere. I feel like the Shadow Lord would be more valued if he was in another list with, like, maybe mounted heroes you want to protect or more expensive warriors. I think you thinking as, like, allying other armies in with Mordor, other contingents, that makes sense, how he could be really valuable. I think maybe we're just thinking more context of pure Mordor or what there is in Mordor. Because normally you think... Yes, I'll save like five or six Black Numenorians from being shot down because I have the Shadow Lord. You can just use those points to get more, I guess. It's like, that's like the kind of, you're weighing your options, right? Like, would you rather have protection from shooting or just have more models? But if you're allying, then you'll have other stuff from other lists that are more fragile that you would want to protect. So I can understand that. So one point I want to make is, I feel like I thought a lot about the Shadow Lord. And again, I threw him in the middle of the pack and I, if I got him assigned to me to use at a random tournament, I'd be like, okay, not so bad. But I feel like playing shooting heavy armies the last few years, I see some games where you just don't get a lot of wounds on your opponent. And I really realize the value of knowing that the shooting battle is only a portion of the game and the combat is going to happen every single game for the majority of the game. I started to think more about, you know, if I'm bringing like Lake Town Mirkwood or Hobbits or like a Gondor list with a bunch of shooting in it, you know? Like, this is cool, but I start to make army decisions based off of when the lines clash. Because a lot of the times, if you're facing those lists at a tournament, I feel like someone with Mordor is going to have Gurrits in there. Or they're going to have regular captains. And I feel like they're going to be in your face in two, three turns, depending on the scenario. So at that point, the Shadow Lord's ability is gone. Dark Marshals is still there. Betrayer still has his buffs. You know, even Kamul's still getting back his stuff. So I still like the Shadow Lord. I just don't love him. I loved him in the last edition. He was probably my number two Wraith. But, yeah, I don't know. He's still in the very usable category to me. I just, from an opponent's perspective, playing against him, I'm not so worried anymore. Ian, Mr. Shooter also? Uh, You know, it is what it is. I mean, I hate coming up against him because I always have max bows. (laughs) Maybe that's why I put him higher. (laughs) The more and more that we are talking, the more I want to go with my original get on the Dark Marshal, and that is to put him at position 5 exactly in the middle because i think he does everything and he just kind of does it all right but i don't know who would have to move out of that position in my ranking for that i don't know should we go through the list and try and all decide on what what we think where everybody should be having heard everything else (laughs) well obviously we don't agree i think (laughs) a lot of the rankings (laughs) can we we come up with a definitive list (laughs) i mean to be honest like i have some very strong opinions about individual models but at the end of the day I feel like the Witch King has his own echelon. The next chunk of guys are all really, really close, like neck and neck. And then you have, like, the Dormer Lake and the Knight of Umbar, you know? That's what I said, like, five minutes beforehand. Right before Ian came in the chat, I was like, I have the Witch King at the top. I have the Knight of Umbar and the Dormer Lake at the bottom. And I'm just trying to fill in the middle six. Can we settle on a top three, then? I don't think that's possible. You heard what Matt said about about (laughs) Kamal. I don't think we can settle on a top three, because most of us think... uh, Kamul is up there, and and Matt wants him removed from the game. One thing I had in defense of Kamul is the way I see his essence leech rule is I see it as having a more consistent heroic strike. 
So a hero normally uses a might to roll and gain d6 fight value. He can spend a will and a might and start at fight six and then roll up. So I feel like that's like an option that's available to him only. I like how Kamul can start at fight six. I think that makes him more consistent than the Witch King. I think they're about the same in terms of combat ability, but I think it's because Kamul has a more consistent heroic strike than the Witch King. Yeah, and and I think uh, as well, like there's a couple raids on this list that can regain will. And even though he starts with 12, I feel like Kamul's way to get back will is a lot more consistent. Like, okay, we, we all know that Knight of Umbar's crap, but <laughs> like his version is not even game back will. It's I might not lose will, you know? And then, <laughs> and then the undying is like, it's good, but again, you have to build a very specialized list with a lot of casters and you have to put them all very close together. So I feel like... Kamul is the one that will consistently get you a good chunk of will every single game because he's going to be fighting. That's his role. So I feel like rather than the 12 will that he has, it's probably upwards of 15. Let me ask you guys one question on this specifically about like gaining back will. I keep hearing gaining back will about Kamul. When you're writing a list, if you were to use him, like what's your goal with him? Because his casting's oh, with the lower tier ability of, you know, casting like the numbers, the basic numbers, right? And with Kamul, you, I mean, the whole idea is I think you're trying to kill stuff off. So he's constantly by your lines, and he's constantly going to be in combat. I think it leaves you a little bit more prone to, you know, being countercharged with a lost heroic roll-off or something like that. I guess the whole point of what I'm getting after is there's definitely two tiers of rates. Some that are just getting into combat and fighting all the time, and then support casters. So having the will back is really cool for him, but you're going to have to chuck a lot of dice if you really want him to cast spells correctly, right? So I guess I'm just seeing guys like the Shadow Lord, the Dwimmer Lake, the Witch King, whatever. They're all excellent casters that could support from the rear. And those are the guys who'd probably be better off having such a great ability to get their will back. But I see all the will coming back to Kamul, and I'm just like, well, you could have a guy who gets his will back and fights well, or you could just have somebody who fights well and also casts. I don't know. But I guess I'm just asking, like, what is your goal with that? I kind of see him more like a hero that's a combat hero that has the option for magic. So, for example, kind of like Mouth of Sauron, like you're not going to cast every turn. You'll throw some transfixes in there early on, compels, uh, when you have above 10 will. And then as you get closer to the game, or if you don't wound very many things and you're at low will, then you're just a pure combat hero. I think it really depends on your targets, really. Like if you can pick your targets with a fell beast and charge who you want, you might not even need to transfix them. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. He kind of is just like the combat guy, but then he can also just say, oh, I'm going to throw, you know, three dice of this compound, I'm going to pull you forward to make my job easier. And then he goes and kills the, the, like, the target he wants to go after, right? So he kind of combines those two things into one. Because obviously you, you can pick another model to do what he does better, right? You could pick, you could ally in a spider queen, but then you don't get the versatility of also being able to like have magic that he can cast, right? Could we agree on a top three? I just told you no. So, so I, I mean, maybe not the whole thing, but I would, I would say generally well, we'd have the witch king. number one. Yeah. 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 We'd probably have the and betrayer in there, right? Everyone except Alex put betrayer in the top three. I did say the tainted and the betrayer could probably be in swap places, so I could agree that the betrayer should be third. Okay. Yeah, we can agree that the betrayer so, uh, is in top three. Being the most hateful Kamul representative here... I mean, I did have him at six, right? And I talked about the fact that, like, you have these rolls with these ring rates at that um, level, and Kamul's an excellent combat rate, if that's what you're going for. 
I think he's like also not somebody who you have to be so situational with, like the uh, Tainted, for example. I mean, like, you know how we give you a harder, soft hero of valor here? I'll give him like a very soft back of the third place if we could just agree on that one. <laughs> okay. I think I would take that. <laughs> looking, the best I could do here. <laughs> I'm looking at all the lists, like the top three that we have for everybody. So the only other contender would be the Dark Marshal, the Tainted, Kamul, or the Shadow Lord. So there's four contenders for the last spot in the top three. I don't think I mean, Tainted, since the Tainted is like seventh for like three of us. And we're it's going to be Kamul. We think Kamul? Yeah? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean... I don't think we should be trying to agree on the top three. If we're trying to find some middle ground, I feel like agreeing on the bottom <laughs> two is already good enough. Yes, we hate bottom those two guys. Bottom two, yeah. so we have the Witch King <laughs> and the Prayer top two. Dormer like Night of Umbar bottom and the rest just, you know, good sandwich material. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you put like the history. tomato on top of the lettuce <laughs> or do you put the lettuce on top of the tomato? Does it matter? This has been a really cool discussion. Listeners, we'd like to know what your rankings for these nine movies are as well. If you want, please share your ranking on our Facebook page. And Matt, thanks again for coming on to the podcast to talk to us today. Yeah, um, I can't thank you guys enough. I had a blast. Nice different change of subjects. Good to see you guys again and talk again. Obviously, I'm a a fan as much as I am a a guest, or more so, I should say. So I look forward to hopefully being on again one day and uh, to listening to more of your podcasts. Awesome. Thank you all for listening. And look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast. 